All right. You ready to go? Absolutely. All right. Here we go. Today is Sunday, April 12th, 2015, and this is episode 113 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Jerry, how are you, sir? Doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm a changed man. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, because of your experience. It's true. It was... Um... I'll never be the same. Well, well, just give a give a thirty second. I I feel like I'm hijacking your show for something completely unrelated, but I'm not gonna, not everybody gets to do what you you got to do. So that's go ahead. true. I was very fortunate this past uh, Thursday Friday. Uh, kind of took a vacation, couple vacation days. Went down to Beaufort, South Carolina, for uh, they have an air show there at the Marine Corps Air Station. And uh, a friend of mine, Charles Atkinson, is a journalist. And writes for examiner.com and CNN and whatnot. And I have done some freelance photography gigs with him where while he's doing various cool things like riding the backseat of the Blue Angels F-18 and the backseat of Thunderbirds F-16, that sort of thing, I, I take pictures and video for him. Anyway, uh, he was down there and got invited to ride along on the Blue Angels C-130 Fat Albert. However, he's done it before. And when we got there, the DOD said, nope, you can't go. You've already had enough rides. So uh, through his kind graces, he said, well, what about my camera dude? Can he go instead? And they said, sure. So uh, I got uh, chosen to go for a ride on the C-130, Fat Albert, during their air show demonstration, So, which is a very aggressive, high dynamic, max performance demonstration flight. So a bunch of positive 2G turns, some negative Gs, uh, crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, but the kicker was, instead of riding in the back with everybody else, I got a chance to ride in the cockpit. So I uh, got to have a headset on, hear all of the uh, cockpit chatter, all of the ATC chatter, and see out the front as we did this 10-minute uh, to 15-minute demo flight, which was absolutely kick-ass. And I uh, got a chance to film it. So just put it together and threw it up on YouTube and uh, retweeting it and tweeting it and you know, trying not to humble brag too much, but it was absolutely an amazing opportunity. I will tell you, it's scary. That's uh, some crazy flying. If you ever seen a video of Fat Albert at an air show, you'll know what I'm talking about. But it's one of the things you just can't say no to. It's a life changing event. That was a lot more than thirty seconds. Well, fine. Here, here's a short version. I went for a cool airplane ride. There, <laughs> you can edit it down. Uh, sounds sounds pretty cool. We'll uh, I'll add a link to to your videos. In the show Thanks. notes for people. Thanks. And uh, also at the air show, got a chance to ride with the Geico Skytypers, who are amazing. Uh, so shout out to them. They fly World War II era T6 Texans and did a four-ship formation flight. Took a bunch of pictures on that, although half of them were screwed up because my camera had bumped onto the wrong setting by accident, and I forgot to check it. So I only got half of my pics off that one, but I'll get those published and up on my Flickr at some point here. But uh, So shout out to them as well because they're a really cool group, and the pilots themselves are really amazing folks. And So shout out to both them and, and, uh, and the Blue Angels. All right. I, I yield the balance of my time back to you, sir. Good deal. All right. So... Um 
Uh, next thing, next uh, topic of business is the thoughts and opinions we expressed on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So the the uh, next order of business is uh, the High Tech Crime Investigations Association Conference, which is coming up August 30th through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. Um, by the way, the, the I noticed today that the uh, the ticket price is going up. I think effective May 1st or something like that to $750. So uh, you know, get your tickets while while they're cheaper and use the uh, the discount code defensive security and you'll you'll save a, a kind of a pot of money. Also, we have a ticket to give away and we are uh, having a contest through the month of April. Uh, tweet to us at defensive sec uh, that you're interested in uh, being entered for the ticket drawing and we will let people know sometime in May uh, who who gets the ticket. So uh, anyway, it looks like a really very cool conference. I'm intending to be there. I think Mr. Kellett's going to try to get there. And uh, yeah, be there, be square. Indeed. And I think it's uh, also just any mention of defensive security on Twitter gets you True. once per day entry. That's if, right. If I, if I remember our arbitrary rules that we came up with on the fly and could change at any notice rules. That's true. That's true. Although it is a little, I'm, I'm finding that some people are, are wanting to tweet to us, but not wanting to be entered. So, Well, that's fair. You, you always have the right to, to say no. Uh, also, 10% off if you use our code for the tickets, which is? Defensive security. There you go. So if you want to if you want to win the ticket, make sure you can get there, please. It doesn't include airfare or accommodations, but we'd love for someone to make use of it. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, uh, at least I'll be there. Mr. Callet might be there, and we'll be doing some amount of recording while we're there or while I'm there. So, uh, so having said that, uh, we actually have another thing to play. Our our uh, our friend Martin Fisher asked us to play something, so I'm gonna hit play on that right now. Hey there, I'm Armor Guy from the award-nominated Southern Fried Security Podcast. And I'm Tone Call. And we're here to remind you that the last day for you to submit your CFP for the Proving Grounds track at B-Size Las Vegas, April 15th. Wait, what? What happened to Moe? Well, you know, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and it's Moe. Yeah, I didn't like the puns either. Anyways, let's talk B-Sides. We are still looking for more talks from speakers who have either never spoken before or have never spoken at a national conference. Are you thinking you want to submit, but you're worried about the cost of getting to Las Vegas? Tell you what, B-Sides is offering up to $500 in scholarships for those who need it. Details on how to apply for the scholarships are out there on the B-Sides website. I was there last year. I know how much the speakers got from creating positive relationships with some of the best presenters in the InfoSec community. Trust me, you want to be part of this. So what are you waiting for? Submit your CFP proposal today, and you can be paired up with one of our awesome mentors like Nick Prococo, TV's Joe Grand, Ian Amit, and many others. TV's Joe Grand? Yep, that's what I said. And Nick Prococo. He is so dreamy. Eh, he's okay. Well, we can talk about that later. But again, the deadline's Wednesday, April 15th. Tax day is also CFP day. Submit your talk, bsideslv.org slash CFP. We can't wait to see what you got. 
So, yeah, there you go. That's uh, coming up Wednesday. He's dreamy. <laughs> I Hey, I have nothing to do with it. I, I just told Martin I'd play it. Yep. Hey, just so everybody knows, we're just service to the community, public service announcement. Please don't send us your hate mail. That's right. At least about that. You can send us about other things. Absolutely. So uh, our first story tonight comes from Ars Technica, and the title is Police Chief. Paying the Bitcoin ransom was the last resort. And uh, the story here is yet another police department falls victim to crypto locker. Uh, so I don't think there's anything revolutionary in here, except that I find it extraordinarily maddening that we, you know, we, we get all tied up in talking about sophisticated ways of mitigating attacks. And apparently they're not backing up a, an important server that contains, um, you know, important, uh, police data right it's it's um man i I gotta tell you this is this is just it 101 and um, if we can't if we can't back up stuff i think we've got a real big a real big problem so um sometimes the simple answers are, are pretty pretty effective still so um well you know i was thinking about this too Certainly, I agree with most of what you're saying, or everything, really. However, I was thinking about the backup side of this with CryptoLocker. So if you have a fairly just normal backup routine, you're probably maintaining one version back for backups. So what do you do if your CryptoLocked copy of the file is the one that gets backed up and overwrites your non-encrypted version of the file? So just recovering from backup isn't necessarily what you need to do. So now it's almost like we need to maintain versionings of backups and catch that this happened quick enough to grab an older version. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, you know, and, and I, th- I think we've seen in the, in recent time, some new spins on this, like uh, they encrypted a database in place and, and had a kind of transparent decryption and then suddenly revoked the key after a couple of months to make sure that all the backups were, encrypted but you know i i gotta at least i hope that people are keeping more than you know the, the yesterday's backup or or maybe even a week's worth of of tape um you know i i would imagine that it would be palatable to uh you know to, to lose a couple of days worth of data but i but again i you know maybe not Maybe not, and, and at the same time, five hundred bucks, depending on the you know the value of the data you have, is not a huge amount. Well, yeah, and we've talked about this too that they have found the perfect, well, not the perfect, but the relatively smart amount that most people will be able to afford to pay to fundamentally do this. At the, if they were charging ten thousand, a lot of folks would say, "Forget it, I'm, not, I'm just, I'm just not going to get my data back." Keep being a couple hundred bucks is well within the means of most people and most organizations to that financial hit isn't as bad as they get their money. The bad guys get their money. The good guys get their file back. Small amount of money. It doesn't cripple them. It sucks, but it's almost like a minor shakedown that everyone just kind of going, well, what are you going to do? We didn't have a choice. Now, the problem is this just perpetuates the problem. Exactly. 
you know, they found that right point that as long as they can get that crypto locker out there, they're probably going to get a good hit rate on folks paying. Right. Right. And there's nothing special about crypto locker that, you know, the, that is the the payload. The the exploits are just the common sort of stuff that you have for most malware running around. It's just the same defensive strategy. That's right. But it is unfortunate, especially when a when a you know you see us coming from you know a police department having to to pony up the money. Yeah, you know the, the what struck me though. I have to I have to tell you is what. What if it wasn't CryptoLocker, but, you know, their drive died or their server caught on fire or, you know, it it, it, it just seems to me like, um, you know, maybe maybe this is a symptom of a bigger a bigger problem. Oh, I think you're right there. How, how do you deal with that is a good question. Um, and or I should say pointing that weakness out comes back to the, you know, IT 101 failure you were talking about earlier. Right. You know, is there other valuable data on there that's at risk because you don't have a, any sort of backup routine? And there's really no excuse today. You look at any of the online backup systems, you look at Dropbox, you look at OneDrive, you look at iCloud, you look at, uh, you know, Carbonite, Mosey, you name it. There's dozens and dozens of ways to back up off-site securely, cheaply. Exactly. So, And I think a lot of those even have versioning, as you were describing. Yeah, yeah, it's just one more thing we need to think about, right? Because, for instance, the way, you know, like Mosey and Carbonate works is it looks for changes in the file and uploads the deltas and overwrites the old file. Well, if you don't have versioning on, and it's on pretty much all the time with certain idleness levels, if you don't have any sort of versioning turned on, as soon as that crypto locker hits a file and and encrypts it, that's now the version that's going to go up and overwrite what you had up online, which is a problem. Right. (laughs) So, got to figure that out. Yeah, but you know that's not a new, that's not a new problem. That, that's I, I remember dealing with that back in the nineties. I agree. It's just worth you know pointing out for those folks who may be listening to this. No, I, I twelve I, of them. I agree. I guess the, the 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 point I think the reason I wanted to include this is that you know sometimes sometimes the simple things are effective. You know we 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 often need to just take a step back and make sure we're doing some of the, the simple basics right. And, uh, you know, I know, I think in this particular con- uh, in this particular instance, it looks like it was a server, and I'm guessing it was a file server that probably had everybody's PC mapped with a, you know, a, a share to it, and one of their employees prob- probably got infected and, and uh, you know, went, and went through and recursively encrypted all the files, which kind of says well maybe you should do something with acls and you know that sort of stuff um but you know we also see at least i've also seen a lot of i guess bad hygiene with files being stored only in workstations and that's also a bad you know bad strategy too so kind of yeah i think that's very common i see that and i often wonder why organizations um don't start investing more in enterprise-level online backups for that sort of thing. Oh, I agree. Especially for traveling laptops, folks who travel all the time. Uh, you know, this concept of only secure, you know, store your secure or useful files on the file server is, once again, talking about user education, something that has failed. So, you know, if your backup regime doesn't go down to what's hanging out on your 
laptops. Yeah. Like, you know, stuff. You know, I, I, it's kind of an interesting thing because I think some organizations just are are willing to accept the write off if if that if something like that were to happen. But you know, I was, I was talking to Bob recently, and he pointed out that. If you don't have a backup like that available of of your laptops and somebody's computer gets stolen or, you know, in some other way, the data on it becomes, you know, questionably, it's it's questionable about whether or not it was disclosed. If you don't have the laptop, you don't know what was on it. Yeah, that's a very good point. And so how do you know what to disclose? Right. Yeah, you don't know if you have a problem or not. I mean, certainly you should be using, um, uh, you know, drive encryption, but, you know, that's not a 100% solution because, as Bob has told me, you know, lots of laptops are stolen when they're hibernated. Well, I think it depends on the settings you have, too, in the hibernation. True. And and depending on the the version of the software, but yeah, it's a very good point. Um, At the same time, if they are hibernating and you come up, most everybody has them set to at least have a login. Um, you know, prompt pop up to at least for for most Windows boxes have AD creds put in to get back into the box. Yep, but, but yeah, it's a good point. It's it's one more vector to think about, and there are some novel attacks about if it is hibernating and you do pop up recovering the encryption key from memory. But that is fairly sophisticated, and I do believe some of the full disk encryption software vendors are are now starting to change the code to deal with those sorts of novel attacks but yeah anyway. it just it, it creates interesting complications you know let's say you have lots of phi on the laptop right and you know certainly if the laptop is off and it's whole disk encrypted with pgp or, or something else you you probably don't have a disclose you know a disclosure i'm not a lawyer and that's not legal guidance right but if the laptop is hibernated do you you know that's a good question. <laughs> that may be something that a regulator may have to decide. Yeah, yeah. I, and I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure. I, I, I would imagine this that question's come up before. I can't. I can't imagine that's a that's a new question. So, anyway, beat that one into the ground. Our next story comes from Computer World, and the title is "Russian Hackers Accessed White House Email." We've talked in the past a couple of times about the. Um, uh, the State Department's email system being hacked. Um, and, you know, there's lots of uncertainty or, or lack of clarity about exactly what happened. Uh, we do know that their network was taken offline a number of times. Their email servers were shut down a number of times. Hillary Clinton herself didn't trust, apparently, the the email server and, uh, and used her own. So um, apparently, again, there's not a lot of detail but it appears that the attackers, who CNN, by the way, are crediting as Russian government-sponsored hackers, um, not sure exactly how CNN has come to that conclusion because even the government is not uh, ba- backing that attribution. So that's kind of interesting. Um, be that as it may, uh, it, apparently the attackers, whoever they might be, um, used their access to the State Department's systems to then get into a White House unclassified network, which, you know, horrors of horror, has President Obama's schedule. <laughs> Un- unpublished 
unpublished schedule. Sensitive schedule. You know what? What is what is really amazing is that uh, even though apparently these hackers had access to President Obama's schedule, nothing, no ill has fallen to True. President Obama. But in all fairness, if you did intend the president harm, having access to his schedule, especially unannounced schedule, does make your job as an attacker a little easier. Uh, and the Secret Service's job as a defender a lot harder. So I, you know, I can see the concern. But if it was that important, should it not be part of the classified? You know, it, I don't know. I'm I'm having a hard yeah. time with this. Right. 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 And, and then it comes down to different levels of classification. Now, I don't know a lot about the classified computer network and and how it is used. But my gut is there's probably a, a larger hassle factor to do sort of some of these things on the classified side. So therefore, it comes back to the age-old debate of security, which is usability versus security. And so in this case, going on the unclassified side, maintaining scheduling, that sort of thing, probably is easier for everybody to deal with. Again, I'm making a lot of suppositions here and assumptions, but I bet that's why they did it. Yeah. And so I, I, I brought this story in not because I, I wanted to just pile on um, to the government, but... I, it's something that I've seen in the past, especially with companies who are, you know, who are a conglomeration or who have made acquisitions, and you know, where you you have kind of different, different operation, different operations, and um, you, you, this is a an interesting kind of case in point. Well, you know, obviously it's very very visible, but I have seen similar kinds of things in the past where. A uh, you know a newly acquired subsidiary or a joint venture or some other you know some other kind of entity where there is an implicit trust relationship between the the two entities is leveraged by an attacker because one of the entities is you know is, is compromised and uh, and used as an entry point to the uh, you know to the other the other entity and I think this is kind of a spin on the you know the the third party discussions we've been having you know the the target fazio kind of thing right where you really need to understand what kind of of risks your i guess i'll call them counterparties can impart on your on your systems yeah you make a great point and knowing that they came in from the state department once again you've got that trusted third party it's clearly the the angle they came in through what sort of compartmentalization should have been there? And we don't know because we don't know anything about exactly how they went from the State Department over to the White House. But could they have done the same attack without the State Department? Don't know. Let's assume for a moment they couldn't. So therefore, you need to come back and say, okay, what was open between the White House and the State Department computers that allowed this hack to, to occur? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously we don't have details. But if I had to guess, if, if I were going to put money on it, I'd say they – knowing that they were, were these attackers were allegedly in the state department email system i'm going to guess that they were probably sending email you know f malicious emails from the state department to the white house um again totally speculation but you know i, I think it's probably reasonable yeah i'd go with it so anyway just uh you know food for thought right Okay, our next story is, uh, boy, this is an interesting one. It comes from Dark Reading, and the title is, So You Don't Believe in Security Education. 
Ah, boy. So, um, so long, it's a long story. Um, but I'll, I'll sum it up but like this, right? There's the, it's written by the CEO of, uh, uh, security education company. So you got to keep that in mind. And uh, his point is that we have lots of people like Dave Itell and Bruce Schneier and Anup Gosh publicly saying, you know, security education, security awareness education is kind of a non-starter. We should be focusing our efforts elsewhere. And so this, this uh, author, Joe Ferreira's point is no, that's not right. It, you know, you, you, uh, you would definitely not not train your employees on new software and so it's it's really unfathomable that we would ditch security awareness training because it's you know it's effective to some point so um the thing that struck me though is you know I'm I'm kind of in the middle on this because I think that security awareness education certainly has an impact Right, but it has an impact in so much as it reduces the occurrences of some kinds of, you know, security-related problems. But it does not eliminate them by any stretch. Right. So, you know, if you let's just take phishing for a second. If if you deploy a phishing education course, you know, you might go down from a let's say forty percent failure rate to a twenty percent failure rate. Right. So, you know, you've not you've not implemented this super effective control, but you have potentially, you know, limited your exposure or reduced your exposure. So um, what say you? Yeah, I don't think any of us saying that security training is completely useless and no budget should be spent on it. I think my position on it is that if you're only relying on security awareness training, you are doomed. Uh, And to nitpick the specific story directly, I do want to quote from it. So uh, fourth, fifth paragraph down, he asked the question, why the assumption that employees can't learn to be safer? Quoting uh, the author, I find it interesting, okay, outrageous, that security experts and industry players who vocally bash employee training have themselves benefited immensely from education and who no doubt seek well-educated, experienced individuals to assist them in both their professional and personal lives. It is education, after all, that enables a high school graduate to become a brain surgeon, blah, 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 it goes on and on. There's a fundamental problem with this statement. Sure, we benefit from education, and sure, the security industry thought leaders that he quotes above uh, have been very well educated in security. However, they care about security as a matter of their business and their careers and their lives and their hobbies. So the fundamental challenge that I have with his statement is all training and all education is not equal. The motivation of the student to care about that topic matter matters greatly in what is absorbed and what is taken. So, you know, there, there's a quote that uh, <laughs> Dave Ramsey likes to use all the time, that those convinced against their will are of the same opinion still, and I think it applies here. If you take the average employee, let's say somebody in sales, they probably really don't care that much about IT security. So they're not really going to pay that much attention most of the time to IT security training, as opposed to somebody who wants to be an IT security or an IT who's probably going to pay a great deal of attention because it's something they personally care about and have a personal interest in and a passion for. So 
all people's passion about a topic is not equal. Therefore, what they get out of training is not equal. And, you know, he, he pulls out high school graduate becomes grain surgeon. Well, that's not necessarily true. All people go through high school. And all people have different strengths and weaknesses in different topics that they care about. They don't all end up at the same equal place of education and knowledge, regardless of testing and standardized testing. They may have a very core, low-level, basic level of knowledge that all share, but each individual has different ones that they pursue even further and choose different classes. So fundamentally, this guy runs a company that sells security awareness and training software. So he has his own marketing talking points that I came into the same situation when I was in a vendor. You start to believe your own marketing so much that you think it's fact. And what I would say is that most employees look at security awareness training the same way they look at diversity training, sexual harassment training, and other HR training. Some give a damn, most don't. And it's stuff they just have to get through to go back to doing their jobs that pay their bills. They're not going to pay that much attention. Yeah, well said. You know, I, I, as I was listening to reading some of his, his uh, arguments, it struck me that it's kind of the, uh, you know, the, the stereotypical straw man where he, he's, he's built a, an argument about general education and, you know, the, the effectiveness and importance of general education related to careers and equated that with security awareness training. And I think they're just apples and oranges. They're not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that the bigger challenge I see is that, you know, you kind of alluded to this, that there are a lot of organizations and standards bodies and frameworks and whatnot that count security awareness training as a control. And it is not a control, period. It's not a control. It's not a firewall. You know, it is, an, and I'm not saying that to downplay the importance, right? Because I think one thing we also have to be cognizant of is that not all security awareness training is the same. And so the security awareness training my company might do could really be very good. And then somebody else's company could be really crappy. And, and you know, or I could have different a different uh, demographic of people than some other company. And to me, it seems like this is a great opportunity for us to figure out what is the optimal kind of education we should be delivering to our employees and what's the value we get out of it. This is like, you know, this is one of those perfect cases for, you know, randomized control tests and certainly probably more, reasonable to do in a larger company. Yeah, right? I would agree. Because every individual company and every individual department has its own motivations too. So he exactly. quotes a bunch of, Yeah, and he quotes a bunch of, of studies from PwC, IBM, uh Aberdeen and a few others. But again, we're very good at finding uh, you know our our belief bias, right? And finding our our things that support our position. But I don't know of too many good third party peer validated studies that show in general this is the optimal level of security awareness training and frankly i think a lot of it 
is CYA by management saying, well, you were warned in training that you signed off and took a test on that you're not allowed to do this with our data and you did it. So now we've got the paper trail to fire you or take any sort of punitive measure we want against you uh, for violating company policy. I think that's a lot of what some of these trainings are too is more, hey, we told you and you still did it. Yeah, and you know certainly, I think I think even from that perspective, there are different kinds of training, right? Because training on what's acceptable in your security policy is different than training on how to recognize and avoid phishing emails. Right, but and, often those I see them as blended together. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so you know, I, I think that. This is this is an area where if we're going to continue investing money in it, we ought to figure out what is at least for our or specific organization in the makeup of our employees, where they're where they're located, the cultures they are they're from, and whatnot. You know what what makes the most sense? Is it is it a, a shorter monthly class? Is it you know a long once a year class? It, you know. What th- there just seems to to me to be a lot of opportunity for us to figure out how best to optimize this, and and all of the discussion I see is it's like a food fight. On the one hand, you have the security training vendors, and on the other side, you've got the technology vendors, and they're just throwing fruit at each other. Well, I think I think you're hinging towards you know there's got to be a way to measure this. Yeah, absolutely. And and use it for what it's use it for what it's worth, but but don't have unrealistic expectations. You're gonna have to have some kind of technical control because you cannot rely exclusively on awareness training. It just yeah. isn't gonna work. Yeah, I think we absolutely are of the same opinion that you still need technical controls to backstop it at the very least. And here's the thing: technical controls, for lack of a better term, are more consistent in their effectiveness than I think security training, which is highly dependent on the individual. Yeah, absolutely. And whether they had their coffee in the morning or, I mean, there, there's there's so many subjective challenges with, um, you know, when you're dealing with human dynamics. So anyway, um, I actually wrote something about this. I'll put a link into it. But Yeah, I, I apologize. I had not seen that because I was out run around an air show, but I'll have to, I'll have to read it. Yeah, no worries. All right. Our, our last story tonight comes from Reuters, and the title is Destructive Hacking Attempts Target Critical Infrastructure in Americas, according to a survey. So this survey was done by the Organization of American States, and uh, they found that critical infrastructure, as defined by the OAS, which, by the way, is... Not very well defined what they're what's actually all in there, but um, it appears to be energy, telecommunications, and finance, as far as I can tell, uh, is what they're considering to be part of that critical infrastructure uh, bucket. But basically, they say that you know there are an increasing level of attacks focused on destroying data. Uh, rather than manipulating data and also uh, trying to to alter their their processes, right? So if you're a an oil company, right, they're trying to mess with your your uh, production equipment. So, boy, 
there's a couple of couple of problems I have with this. Um, number one is the survey, and they explicitly say this: the survey only asked people about attempts, attempted attacks. It didn't question whether or not they were successful, which is kind of a problem. What defines an attempt? Firewall drop? Well, that see, that's exactly my point, and I, because I would bet you that every specific organization is going to interpret that question differently. You know, we we know from previous experience that some organizations will count a ping sweep as an attack. And, you know, and, and others will count a, you know, a, a Z-Bot email, Z-Bot infected email as an attack, right? You know, so so that's, you know, that's a very... And you can kind of see where you can go down a, a pretty dark path because if your employees are, you know, they're receiving, uh, let's say, again, crypto locker emails by virtue of just having an email account that got added to some stupid list, right? Not that it's being targeted, but hey, that's an attack tar- you know, aimed at, at destroying your data. So, and now now it's on the list. The other thing that... Um, that I noticed is, uh, oh, oh, first off, the this person from Trend Micro had this quote in there, which kind of set me off the deep end a little bit. He says that this is the year we will suffer a catastrophe in this hemisphere, and we will see a kinetic response. So, you know, basically, what he's saying is that we're going to see a cyber-originated catastrophe and there will be a kinetic response to that catastrophe digital pearl harbor (laughs) oh yeah yay talking points that's right and then putting money on that (laughs) and i don't say that just as a joke i say that because we have found not we but you know, scientists and, and statisticians have found that people who are willing to bet actual money have a far higher accuracy rating than those who don't bet money on predictions. Well, that's right, because nobody's going to come back around to this guy and say, you know, at this time next year and say, hey, you said, um, you know, you said that we were going to see this and it didn't happen. So what about that? It's not going to happen. And if it does happen, he's going to look brilliant. That's true. Right, so um, th- there is one other. Well, let me ask you this: Do you okay. think that his fundamental assumption is valid? That at some point we will have something that is some sort of computer-borne attack that results in some sort of non-computer-related kinetic response? It seems inevitable, right? However, I, I do want, and I made this comment on Twitter earlier today. If, if these critical infrastructure providers are being targeted to the extent uh, that that is being claimed with the sophist- level of sophistication and intent on harming them that is being claimed. How come we've not seen any outages that have been attributed to you know online stuff? It seems, I, I, you know, I can't wrap my head around the number of providers out there and the number of these attacks that must be you know, being attempted. 
how come that's not how come it's not happening? It seems like if it were as bad as it is being portrayed, we should be seeing at least some. And I'm not aware of any except you know outside of a, a, a couple of rare cases. That's a fine point, and I don't have a good answer for you. Is it something that we're sustaining this level of attack? Is it something that the attacks aren't actually getting to the actual control uh, networks themselves, but hitting, in essence, the unclassified version of the utilities? I don't know. Yeah, one of the points they they bring up in at the at the end of this article is that uh, some of these attacks in. in it could just be a case where these providers, you know, it's, it's actually happening, but because the, these providers are not res- required to disclose it, they aren't disclosing it, right? So if, if uh, let's say, they have a database that's deleted and that causes them a problem, they're not obligated to report that to anyone. Um, you know, but again, if if you have a database that's deleted and it doesn't impact your, you know, the, the power that you're delivering or the oil that you're delivering, you know, I, I, yes, that's. I'm not saying that's not a great, that's not a good thing. Certainly, it isn't, but it isn't putting you know the quote critical infrastructure in jeopardy. So, is this much ado about nothing? Well, so here's another here's another point that that, that concerned me because I think it kind of goes to that question. The Department of Homeland Security says that they interviewed the DHS or they requested a comment from DHS. And DHS says they do not keep stats on attacks on critical infrastructure. Um, But, and then the next, kind of the next paragraph, they say that, and politicians are gravely concerned about the number of attacks and the severity of attacks beleaguering these critical infrastructure players. So what exactly are they basing that on? Getting their budgets up for next year. Well, no, I, I agree, but upon what data are politicians, in quotes, basing their fear? You know, what is it? You know, is it is it uh, they're watching CSI Cyber or you know, <laughs> Good Morning America? I, I, I don't. Uh, no, it's a good point. How real is a threat? Now, we're not one to downplay stuff. We, I mean, we see problems every single day. But I think that we both feel that decisions like this need to be driven by data in the real world, not gut feelings and, you know, hearsay. And my sister's cousin's roommate's brother said X. Exactly. Because otherwise, we're, we're driving important policy based on a set of anecdotes. Now, none of us want, you know, key utility providers and other critical infrastructure to be unprotected. So there's not necessarily a downside to having them have a healthy fear of hack attempts. But at the same time, they also have a limited budget. Where are they going to spend it? So is this the equivalent of really bad threat intelligence? You know, that that's a good question because... You know, one of the thing, one thing that I I just don't have visibility into, and maybe you know, maybe it's not a, as big of a deal as I'm making it out to be, but you know, are are, are these critical infrastructure companies? You know, what, what I guess let me take a step back. 
What's the motivation for all of this? And maybe you're, you know, you you already mentioned it that everybody's looking for bigger budgets and and more control and and on and on and on. Um, you know, it just it, it it smacks me as odd that we have lots of people running around with their hair on fire about a problem that we don't really see any evidence of it being a problem publicly. And I'm not saying that it won't be a problem, and I'm not saying that, you know, it's not something that we need to get in front of, because certainly, you know, the this, the level of sophistication of attacks is going up. The level of connectivity of, you know, industrial processes is going up. And, you know, those are undeniable trends. And at some point, I think they will converge and there will be problems. But I guess my point is that convergence doesn't seem to be, you know, doesn't seem to be bearing out at this point. Now, I'm I'm sure in certain circumstances, you can point out that, yeah, there are, there have been some, some things, but again, I say if it were as bad as, as portrayed, it, you know, it seems like my power would be going out all the time. So anyway, that's what I say. No, it's an interesting point. And I, I think you're on the right, on, on kind of the right path. I, I don't have a better answer at the moment. I, I do think that we are not making data-driven decisions around this, though. That's that's my concern. Yeah. That's my concern. So anyway, that is uh, the show for this week. And um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Mr. Callett, for joining me. As always, it's a pleasure, sir. And uh, I hope you and the listeners all have a great week. Thank you, you too. And uh, for those listening, if you want to find links to our stories, visit our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can find us on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callan on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next week. Take care. And I would like... Word security. Uh, and this is... Uh, crap. <laughs> Sorry. Ad. Podcasting professionals here, boys and girls. Well, that one I wrote actually wrote an article about that one. Oh, cool! On, uh, but how did I miss that? I don't know because you don't pay attention to what I do. That's why. Wait, who are you again? Why are you here? <laughs> but what am I doing here? <laughs> why am I not wearing pants? When did you publish? <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye now. Bye bye. 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 Bye bye.